Welcome to the Global Hearted Podcast, where your heart for people around the world can deepen, and where you can be empowered to better reflect Jesus and His heart for all to know Him. I'm Jason Paulson, here with Anthony Taylor for today's discussion. Our last episode discussed prayer, uh, how prayer needs to be a constant part of our life. Uh, It's a communion with God, not just a segment of our life that we block out time and enter into prayer. It happens uh, throughout our whole life. And our first earlier episodes before that, uh, we've tried to lay foundations about how, Anthony, you've seen effective workers in frontier context shape their attitudes. Uh, So now we can really start to talk about how to be more effective in actions that we do in the frontier cultures. Uh, So in this episode and our next two, we're going to be discussing more directly about how we talk about Jesus. The word that a lot of people use is evangelism for this. Questions people probably uh, have just hearing the introduction and uh, our earlier episodes are questions like, how can I talk about my faith in this unobtrusive manner that you've talked about? Uh, Or how could I talk about my faith when I'm concerned that secret police or religious extremists are monitoring me. How do I do evangelism? Anthony, how how would you answer some of those questions? Jason, those are are really good questions. I mean, you know, when you're in a conservative religious context, you know, a religious government is religious in orientation, you could get into trouble if you're, you're going about this dimension the wrong way. But what really hinders us is how we view um, evangelism, you know. So what, when we sit back and think, what does evangelism, what is evangelism and what does it look like? I would say that, you know, looking back in my, you know, when I was an early follower of Jesus, you know, thinking about, you know, the seminars that I took on how to share your faith and everything like that, the, the view of evangelism was, you know, you had to talk directly about core aspects of the gospel, like, you know, God exists, there is a God, you know, and why don't we know, why does he feel distant, why don't we know this God, so we have to know what sin is and what separates us from God, and Jesus came to deal with the problem of sin and of this separation from God once for all. We need to explain how through Jesus we find forgiveness and reconciliation with God. When we think about evangelism in this manner, it's the verbal proclamation of specific gospel content. And when this information is shared, evangelism happens. When this content isn't shared, (laughs) evangelism doesn't happen. Maybe something pre-evangelistic is happening, but not the sweet spot where, you know, you can walk away from that conversation and go, oh, yeah, I I was able to share it, you know, really clearly there. Organizations, even, you know, many mission organizations reinforce this kind of thinking because they have their workers fill out forms on a weekly basis that ask them to quantify how many times they share their faith? How many, how many times did you share your faith? How many Bible studies have you had? You know, are you having, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So this view of evangelism becomes particularly problematic 
when we go into restricted access countries um, because people go out to meet people and they try to talk about their faith, but <clears throat> they find that very few people are interested in talking to them. And then they find themselves without any meaningful relationships. And this leads to an immense amount of frustration because you know, they're supposed to be sharing their faith. They're supposed to be going out there and meeting new people. And yet the opportunity, people don't want to talk to them. They're seen as suspicious. You know, what are you doing here? I, why do you want to talk to me about your faith all the time? They get frustrated. They get isolated. You know, what we don't realize is that these same frustrations are experienced by people in many Western countries, in in this country that we're sitting in, people find that their colleagues at work don't want to talk about matters of faith. And so they can't find ways to share their faith. So they actually, they probably wouldn't talk about it directly most of the time or even think about it. It's just something they accept, but it is a level of frustration. And I knew one man, I was in a men's group one time and one guy, Sanjeet, you know, he's working in IT in the, in the U.S., and he summarized his frustration this way. He goes, I can't be the Bible thumper at the water cooler. If I did that, I'd lose my job. And he was just saying that out of frustration because he did want to share his faith, but he just couldn't. So that frustration is shared here, and it is shared there because of this flawed understanding of what evangelism really entails. Yeah, I can definitely identify with that thought from Sanjeet. Uh, when I was just out of college for a while, I worked for a manufacturing company. The shop was a pretty rough environment, shall we say. When I would go out there, there were times, because I didn't work in the shop, I worked in the office side, there were times when I'd go out and I would think, man, I wish there was a way that I could share my faith with these, with these people. There just there's no opportunity way to do it naturally. Uh, and then what I didn't realize was after about a year, I went out there one time and I was talking to one of the people. He said something, and he started swearing, and then he stopped and he apologized and he said, I know you're a Christian and I shouldn't swear like that. And I went, Okay, why why do you think that? That was just all that you know was going through my head. And he said, Well, you don't swear. You don't say rude things about the other people that uh, you work with. You're always polite. And so you've got to be a Christian because there's no other reason why you would be like that. And <laughs> I said, okay, well, thank you. I, I am a Christian. I do try to do those things. And then uh, that person over the next, I was there about another year. And over the next year, there are several times that he then asked me questions or sort of vented about his life and I was able to not necessarily give him the four spiritual laws or the Romans road or anything but just encourage him to look at how I interacted with people and maybe consider that that might be a better pathway for his life and I don't know whatever happened to him but I, I do remember the uh you don't swear and you don't say rude things about people, so you must be a Christian. But that's the whole point. Uh, you know, when we sit back and we, we think about evangelism, we really need to put it into a holistic framework. 
You know, it has to view our lives as important to the task as our words. And when we make this shift, evangelism becomes much more powerful and actually doable, as you've noticed, in restricted access contexts. When we view evangelism as being the proclamation of specific content, we're not paying attention to the fact that most people across the world have negative perceptions of Christians. They have significantly negative, distorted, stereotypical images of who we are, so they're not inclined to discover what our faith is about. I mean, I was talking to guys from Northern Europe, you know, in, in the Nordic countries up there, and they're saying, actually, the, you know, the typical, the stereotypical image up there in their countries have of Christian is these mindless, you know, people with, that have had lobotomies that don't use their heads, they're kind of ignorant, uneducated. Uh, I had that experience. I was, I was traveling in the country that I worked. And we were getting on a plane and this woman, it's a small plane because we're going, it was kind of, a, it was a puddle jumper. We're going from one city to the next and we weren't going out of the country. You know, so I was talking with this one woman and she was from Northern Europe and she looked at me and, you know, she, in the conversation, of course, she found out I was, I had my PhD and she's looking at me and, and she, she just, she said, you know, I don't typically think of Christians as intelligent people, you know, but <laughs> I mean, but you don't fit that image, you know, so we need to step away from this, um, this narrow view of what evangelism is, and kind of broaden it out to include all aspects of our lives. You know, and because we have to think, when people have never been in a personal relationship with a follower of Jesus, and they've never had the faith explained to them, how can they actually know what it means to follow Jesus, what that looks like? They can only accurately learn these things by being in a relationship with people who follow Jesus and watching their lives. And it's by watching our lives, they discover the beauty of and the power embedded within the gospel. You know, our lives, as weak and as frail as they are, are vessels of God's dynamic presence. And the Spirit uses our lives in these relationships to open the doors to explain why we are the way we are. By being in a meaningful relationship with people and by doing life together with them, we're doing more than just evangelism. We are discipling them. We're often blind to this because of our stereotypical image of what evangelism is. It's the sharing of specific content. We, it's so, that is so limiting and so disempowering, I think. When we view it as doing life together, that's what evangelism really is, um, we're demonstrating by our lives what it means to be in a relationship with Jesus. And discipleship therefore begins the very moment our relationship with people begin because we're discipling them on how to live what living like a christian or a follower of jesus looks like and that's why you know i personally don't like the word evangelism because our idea of it is too reductionistic 
and it, it ignores what's actually happening as we live out our lives in our relationships with people. As we do life together with people, we represent Jesus to them. We are teaching them to observe all that Jesus commanded us by the way we live out our lives. And interestingly, that's part of the Great Commission, <laughs> teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. How do we do that? By just part of it is by living out our lives before them. Like this guy, he looked at your life. He said, why isn't this guy, you know, swearing? And he's picking up on all this stuff just by watching you. And actually, it took a year, but you built credibility, you know, and you'd had no idea that he was watching you. But that's the thing. People are watching us. They, they are noticing. And so conceptualizing evangelism holistically as representing Jesus, that's the word I really like. I swap out evangelism for representing Jesus. I, because I find representing Jesus to be a much more powerful way of talking about uh, evangelism rather than something akin to love drive-bys, which means you kind of drop into somebody's life and you shoot the gospel at. Love drive-bys are what I used to do when I would gather with others at a church one evening a week and then we drive into the city to for a couple of hours to hand out tracks and try to talk to people. Now, by saying that, I don't want to disparage that kind of ministry because evening outreaches are a valid form of ministry. Nonetheless, I just simply want to point out that that's something that most of us can't do. Number one, we don't have the time for it. Number two, we don't have the personalities for it. I mean, I had the personality for it, so I, I was very outgoing, so it wasn't ever a problem for me. But the problem is with that, you look at that as being real evangelism, and we lose sight of the power of our personal relationships and the places that we live and serve and work, you know. And that's what we're trying to get people to realize. I represent Jesus wherever I am. And as we enter into that imagery, that thinking, um, it releases us in ways that we had never had imagined were possible. So like Sanji had a very similar experience to you because right after he said, I just can't be the Bible thumper at the water cooler, he, he went on to give a story uh, which he couldn't really understand. His boss had put an underperforming colleague on his team. And the colleague was keeping Sanjit and his team from reaching their deadline. Sanjit just started getting really worried. He thought, man, did the boss put this guy on my team so we wouldn't meet our targets so that I'd get fired? And he got really nervous about this. And so he went to his boss. And he asked him why he put this guy on his team. Sanjit was surprised by the boss's response. The boss said, Sanjit, you are a holier person than I am. If I had him on my team, I'd kill him. But I knew that if I placed him on your team, you would treat him well. And Sanjit was surprised, like you, because he was thinking, I haven't shared a single thing about my faith on this job. And yet the boss knew he was a follower of Jesus. What Sanji didn't realize and what many of us don't realize is that 
you know, the implicit behavioral cues that demonstrate who Christ followers are, you know, everybody knows this in, the, in our culture here. And <clears throat> they know who we are by what we do and what we don't do, by what we say and what we don't say. You know, Sanjit's boss saw those cues and he, through the gifting of, you know, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit on his life, was able to, you know, to put those cues together and go, oh, Sanjit's, you know, a, a follower of Jesus. You know, but what we don't understand is in non-Christianized areas, friends and colleagues don't, you know, necessarily know how to interpret those cues. They see them, but they don't know how to interpret them. In the area where I worked, one of the ways to interpret those by some of the religious people was to say, well, you know, those, those Christians are good people because the devil doesn't bother them. He doesn't tempt them. And so, you know, they don't get tempted like we are because we're the ones that are heaven bound. They're going to hell anyway. So the devil doesn't worry about that. And the devil is trying to trip us up and make us look bad, make us be bad. Because they're already going to hell. He's trying to take us to hell. That's, that's one of the ways that's explained. But the reality is people do see the cues. I, <clears throat> that's why when we lived there, one of the things we wanted to do was take public transport as much as we could so that we could be seen. And one time, my wife got on the bus with our, you know, we had two kids at that time. And we had lived in the city, oh, I don't know how many years it had been. Maybe it had been four or five, six, maybe. I can't remember exactly. And she was followed on the bus. She got on and sat down. And then a religious leader got on the bus. You know, you could tell, you know, who were the religious guys by the way they dressed. And he got on the bus. He looked, you know, at my wife and kids. And then he turned around and said to everybody on the bus, you know, these Christians are really good people. And my, my wife was shocked, you know. Um, now, this is all happening in the local lingua franca, you know, and that just nor that's not a normal thing that happened in those kinds of contexts, because, you know, one of the rules was you don't necessarily talk about the good things about the outsiders, you know, you, you talk about the good things about yourself and that's typical of any culture any people anywhere um but i mean he was just struck you know and it was it was the this is what we expect the holy spirit to do when we are there it's not us it's this we are, have to re always remember we're the temple of the living god and so you know he is there with us and he is shining his light through us weak and frail as we are. Um, so, you know, when we think about how do you do this in a restricted access area, it, this kind of releases a lot of things because as people watch us, just like this guy watched you, it takes a while for us to earn people's trust. But as we earn that trust, the barriers come down. People start talking to us. People start wanting to relate to us because they realize we're good people. Um, like one guy, he just started, he met me at some meeting. He started coming to my house. 
And after he came to my house for a while, he just told me, he said, you know, I just love coming here because the things we talk about, and, you know, we didn't sit there and just talk about religion all the time. We talked about a variety of topics, but always from the perspective, the values that Christ shapes me, you know. So even our, our speech is seasoned with salt, you know, we don't realize that. And so he would come over and he said, I love talking to you. Because we talk about things I could never talk about with anyone else. And I, I was, at the time, I was kind of puzzled by that. And he said, you know, we're, guys, when I get together with my friends, you know, what do we talk about? We talk at, you know, I'm using, you know, American lingo here. Talk about, we're talking about girls. We're talking about dirty jokes, et cetera, et cetera, you know. And, but when I come together with you, we're talking about things that, you know, just expand, you know, just enhance my thinking and expand my thinking and uh, in ways that I couldn't even imagine. And I honestly didn't know that I was doing that, you know, I'm just being who I am. But again, that all is in, in you know, in the context of who we are in Christ. And when you, you're touching any aspect of my life, you're actually touching the center. It's not like a compartment, it's a spider's web. You touch a spider's web anywhere, you're touching the center of that web. Actually, you're touching the entire web. So, you know, when they're any aspect of my life, they're encountering Jesus. And that's once you move into that zone and you realize that, you know, truly. Jesus is shaping the way I think, the way I live, even as imperfect as it is, you know, it just, it's a game changer. And when, when we think about, you know, sharing our faith, because it's a holistic perspective, all of that. One of the things that helps us when we are thinking about this, the one thing that helped me, especially, was something called the Engel Scale. James Engel, he was a professor, I think, of communications. He was at, I believe, at Wheaton College. Um, he recognized that when you view evangelism as strictly or as just the proclamation of some biblical content, that was flawed because it, it's not recognizing that people are on a spiritual journey. He kind of made a chart of what a typical journey of faith could look like. And, you know, he kind of started where somebody would have no knowledge of God, or maybe even being hostile to the idea of God, to, you know, on that chart, he took it from there, like irreligious or hostile to, you know, thinking about God, to all the way to spiritual maturity in Christ. And he put it on the scale, you know, um, on a continuum. At one level, you've got hostile, and then the next level up, the person is, you know, maybe unconcerned about the faith, and, and then the, and the person becomes open to the faith, and then the person becomes interested in the faith, and accepting of the faith, and growing in the faith, mature in the faith, and then leading others in the faith. So he has this continuum of, the, you know, where, find out where you're friend or colleague or person the person you're interacting with is on that journey and then make your conversation appropriate to where they are in the hope that through that interaction 
or the that relationship, not a single interaction, but through the relationship, the person is going to move up the continuum from hostile or unconcerned or open, wherever they are, to the next levels. Um, so that eventually they're being drawn to faith and then they're growing in their faith. This also can you know, motivate us in the way we pray for the people that we know. We can sit there and say, Lord, I think this person I'm working with, he's just hostile to the faith. He's really, you know, he's a, he's a diamond in the rough. And so please, you know, move him forward and create opportunities for that movement to happen. And, you know, create an opportunity for our relationship to deepen in some way. Then all of a sudden, you're, you're not just looking at the person, you're praying for the person. And in that prayer, you're concerned about the person and you're in inviting God to move upon you in ways that, you know, he would like to but you're opening the door for us so that he can actually enter into that space. And you're at the place where you can, God can take advantage of your presence in those spaces. That's what prayer does. It's not that we need to pray to move God. We, we need to pray so that God moves <laughs> us so that we actually begin to live up to, you know, the calling that we've been given. You know, because he wants to do this. It's just our own thinking and our own perceptions are hindering us. And so prayer for our neighbors, our colleagues, our friends, our family, prayer releases God and, you know, to move upon us so that we begin to do the things that we need to do to, to help make this ministry happen. If our faith, you know, since our faith is supposed to be authentic and integrated, you know, every person that gets to know us will discover that Jesus is the center of our lives. And the Spirit will use this relationship, our relationship with them, to uh, move them from either hostile to unconcerned or from unconcerned to open open to interested and each place where they are they are the way we talk about our faith is going to change because if somebody's hostile to the faith you really can't talk much about your faith but you can be who you are and talk and allow the fragrance of christ to emanate through the thing the way that you talk about the stuff you talk about like you mentioned with your colleague <clears throat> he noticed that you didn't demean other people you know, and what does that do? That makes a person know that they're safe in their relationship with you. Because you're not demeaning anybody else, so you're not going to demean them. And all of a sudden, they find that they can, they're willing to talk to you. Because a lot of people, you know, are guarded, you know, around almost everybody. So, you know, because they just don't see the world is a safe place. The relationships is a safe place. But when they find that we're safe, they open up in ways they wouldn't necessarily have expected themselves to open up. But it just is happening because of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Um, and that happens. So somebody's hostile through our lives, through doing life together with them. They become, you know, not hostile anymore. They become somewhat open to us as individuals and then you know later on hopefully you know some of those that are open will become interested and actually want to learn more 
And that can only happen through this normal, re healthy relationship development that, that the spirit wants to happen in our lives. But if we're not thinking about these things, we don't take the time to, to allow the spirit to make it happen. We just allow the speed of life, the speed of everything just to take over. And we don't take time to, for the people around us. I really like this idea with the angle scale, because I think it's a lot more helpful than just the binary, is someone saved or not saved? Um, and the scale really helps us, like you said, think about our interactions as drawing people from one stage of their spiritual journey to another. Um, and some of, the, some of the areas I've worked in, it feels to me like there's some people who are either very naturally good or have focused on developing their skills at helping people move from that interested to accepting but then they don't know how to work with develop relationship develop people who are farther in either direction on the scale maybe someone who's unconcerned they don't they don't they struggle to help them move into open or someone who's growing they they struggle to figure out how to help them move to mature. Do you think that is that there are people who are naturally gifted at certain areas of this scale? Or is it just that people have overdeveloped their skills or emphasized that binary acceptance? Like not that we can abdicate responsibility, but does it make sense to try to focus our efforts somewhere on areas of that scale, like saying, I want to help people to move from unconcerned to open or move them from growing to mature? Or is this just a tool that we need to use to think about where people are at in their spiritual journey and then work on meeting them where they're at? I think, and now again, this is my own, I don't know how accurate this is, but I think most of us are called to be general practitioners, you know, just not specialists in any area. Some are going to be called to be specialists in certain areas. And they just know, you know, they just naturally gravitate towards, let's say, you know, the guy's a natural teacher and a natural discipler of people that, you know, have already made decisions for Christ. And, you know, so those, that's, their natural gifting, their natural inclination, and their supernatural gifting. Um, but most of us are just called to be a presence where we are. If since most of us are called just to be a presence, we just learn have to learn how to kind of just be, you know, you know, have all the tools in the toolbox. You know, so that you know, may, we may not be masters of any of this one tool. You know, like early in my my walk with the Lord, there was one woman, she had a special gifting towards leading people to faith. And she had a very unique way about it. She would kind of, she traveled a lot because she spoke a lot. And so when she'd sit down on the plane, she'd just start talking to the person next to her. And she was very disarming. And in many situations, that person, she had a really good opportunity to share her faith with them. She was very disarming. And she had this thing about, can I sing you a song? And she, you know, she, you know, I could never do that. You know, oh, can I sing you a song, Jason? You'd sit there and think I'm a weirdo. <laughs> <laughs> but certain personalities 
figure, you know, they're gifted in a special way and they can do things that only they can do. And they see God using them in specific ways. So she was used a lot to bring people to faith, but she wasn't used to, in discipleship. So yeah, there are people who are specially gifted in specific areas, but most of us are general practitioners. We, we have the whole toolbox and we take out the appropriate tools at the appropriate times. That's why we always want to be ready to give an answer, you know, when we're asked. But we want to be ready to be who we need to be in those spaces. You know, just to highlight this importance of just being willing to do life together with people. These two nurses went from the West, went to train local nurses in a particular field of medicine. Now these two women, these two nurses, were very strong believers. And they wanted to share their faith. Now, this was a very restricted context, um, but they were quite bold. And so they tried to get the student nurses into a Bible study, but not a single, you know, nurse trainee was willing to get into the Bible study. And so they realized, wow, we're hitting a brick wall with this. So maybe we can just get them to pray. So they tried to get them to pray. And of course, they hit another brick wall. Those nurses, nurse trainees were not willing to, you know, have much to do with those two, um, two Western nurses. And so the two women were, two nurses, Western nurses were very disappointed, but, you know, they didn't lose heart. They just went to prayer themselves and they just started to pray. Well, amazingly enough, nine months later, two of the student trainees came to them and said they wanted to follow Jesus. The two nurses were perplexed. They went, they couldn't imagine, you know, what have we done that, you know, now these two, two young women want to follow Jesus. And so they just asked, you know, what's motivating you to, to turn your lives over to Jesus? And one of the students said to the, the women, when you two come to work, you place your purses on your desks and you don't lock them in your drawer. And then she reached into her blouse and pulled out a necklace. And on the necklace were these small keys. She continued, everything I own, I have to lock up or else my cousins, my sisters, or even my mother might take it from me. You know, I want to live like you too. And so we, what's, what does that story say to me? Well, it says to me that we put limits on God and how he can draw people to Christ. They saw, they saw them put purses on the table. And they saw the level of trust that they had for each other. And those two nurses then, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, they were able to put two and two together and realize, well, these, are, these two women are devoted to Jesus. And their lives show their, that devotion in other areas too. If that's the kind of people that Jesus creates, we want to be those kind of people that can trust, that can love, that can, that can care. What this says to me is when we allow ourselves to establish relationships with the people that God loves, he will surprise us in how he draws them to himself. You know, we can rely on God because as the psalmist says, he doesn't sleep or slumber. 
God is always active and working to draw people to himself. And the wonder and the privilege of it all is that he weaves us <laughs> into what he's doing. And that's just the incredible gift of it all. I really liked earlier how you said, uh, at all times, we're discipling people. And I think about how Jesus in his ministry has people, you know, we call them disciples that are following him, that he works with them for a long time before any of them really begin to understand who he is, that he is the son of God, that he is the Christ, but they are still following him and seeking to understand more, learn from his example. And so I really like even thinking that Jesus doesn't present people right away with, you have to believe in me or else I'm not going to have anything else to do with you. Jesus spends time, develops relationships and disciples uh, his followers through their own spiritual journey. Exactly. Thank you for this week's talk, Anthony. Good talking to you, Jason. Thanks for joining us on the Global Hearted Podcast. If you have more questions about how you can find ways to follow Jesus around the globe, or if you have questions you would like to hear Anthony answer, email us at anthony.taylor at globalhearted.com. Or to hear more episodes, go to globalhearted.com. And now receive a good word. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age.